We open our Bibles this afternoon to John, the Gospel according to John chapter 1, where we'll read the verses 19 to 50. John 1, beginning at verse 19, this is the word of God. Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. As the, apostle, as the prophet Isaiah said, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then did you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. These things were done in Beth Arba, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, and therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, Whom do you, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, 
when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Congregation, let's join together in prayer. Father, will you open our hearts and minds to receive the truth of your confession and your word. Father, we pray that you will bless us this afternoon, also the baptism, and we pray that you will guide us in all things so that your name is honored and glorified above all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation, we, this afternoon we confess um, Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 12. And there we confess about Christ and Christian. Lord's Day 12, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may as prophet confess his name as priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. So far, our confession. Brothers and sisters in the Lord and boys and girls who belong to the Lord, we were accustomed to connect the name Jesus with Christ. And we often talk about the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ. They're obviously the same person. But you know, during Jesus' ministry on earth, it wasn't so obvious that people put those two names together. Most people at the time knew about Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, as they thought, but they refused to see and address Jesus as Christ. They did not connect the name Jesus with Christ. They were okay with the name Jesus, but to call him the Christ? No way. Only the people close to Jesus who understood his words and saw what he did began to realize that the name Christ belonged with the name Jesus. You see, that name Christ was an extremely important name. It was a name with a long history in the Old Testament, in Old Testament prophecy. Translated into Hebrew, that name is Messiah, anointed one. And that name could only be used for one person whose coming had been prophesied all the way throughout the Old Testament, the Savior. But over time, the people around Jesus came to realize and confess that Jesus is certainly the Christ. Think of what the Apostle Peter confessed when Jesus asked his disciples who they said he was. 
And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, this afternoon with Lord's Day 12, we pay attention to that meaningful name, Christ. And then also with the name that, what that name means for those who believe in him and who are called Christians. It also describes then who we are as Christians, as connected to Christ. Just as the name Christ explained the mystery of Jesus' life and work, so the name Christian explains the mystery of our lives and actions as people who are joined to him by faith. So I proclaim to you what we confess from the Bible, Lord's Day 12, with this theme, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed servant of the Lord. Two parts. He devoted his life to God, and he brings us as Christians to devote our lives to God. First of all, Jesus is the Christ who devoted his life to God. The people of Israel lived in the expectation of the Messiah, of the Christ. And you see that from what we read in John 1. They knew all the prophecies about the coming of the Christ in the Old Testament. They lived in the hope of his coming. And that's why when the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem heard about John the Baptist and what he was doing at the Jordan, they sent a delegation to ask him, who, who are you? And they thought he might be the Christ, the promised Messiah. But he said he was not. But he stated that the Christ had certainly come. He was the one who, was, who went before. And when John pointed out Jesus to his disciples two days later then and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that was enough for those disciples of John to leave him and follow Jesus. They understood very well what John meant, which is why Andrew went to his brother Simon. And he said to him, and we read that in verse 41 of John 1, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. Our Bibles add that in brackets, which is translated the Christ. And you also hear that in what the angels announced to the shepherds just after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Luke 2 already. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So you have some idea of how, how intensely the Christ was hoped for, was expected, prayed for among the Jews of that time. They hoped for the fulfillment of all the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the great servant of the Lord, an office bearer, in other words, who would bring about the long hoped for salvation of God's people. A man who, as Jesus read from Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth, would heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed and who would proclaim the great year of the Lord favor, the greatest year of jubilee of all, the year of deliverance. Believing Jews longed for the coming of the Messiah, that great servant of the Lord. But when the Messiah finally does come to his people as Jesus of Nazareth and proclaims himself the Christ, the people of Nazareth refused to accept him as such, the people of his own town. They rejected him as the Christ, the fulfillment of that prophecy about him. 
Sure, some of John's disciples came to the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ. But we know from the Gospels how the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus was marked by that big question, is this Jesus really the promised Christ, the servant of the Lord who would bring glorious delivery for God's people? Or is he an imposter who blasphemes God by claiming to be the Christ? And now you can think again of Jesus' appearance in the synagogue in Nazareth. He read that passage from Isaiah, gave a very short application to that passage, and he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The anointed servant of the Lord, prophesied by Isaiah, had come that day, had announced the year of the Lord's favor, the day of Jubilee, the great day of Jubilee. But you remember how that message was received by the people of Nazareth. They tried to take Jesus outside the town and throw him off the cliff. Well, that question of whether Jesus was the Christ or not remained in Israel throughout his ministry especially with the leaders of the people, right up to his arrest and his trial. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Swear, swear that in other words. And then Jesus said under oath, you have said so. In other words, I am the Christ. And then he was sentenced to die for blasphemy. The thing was, people of God, in particular the leaders, knew, they didn't know anymore what kind of person the Christ, the Messiah, the promised anointed one was, what kind of person he was to be. That was the biggest issue. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, was proclaimed throughout the scriptures but they didn't know what kind of person he was to be anymore. What had God said about him in the scriptures? You see, if you, if you don't know that, then you don't know the answer to the question of whether this Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ or not. And that was the problem with the leaders of the Jews. They wanted not a Christ that came out of the scriptures, but a, a Christ that came out of their own minds who fit their ideas of who he should be, rather than the kind of Christ as described in the Old Testament scriptures. For instance, that well-known passage about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that well-known passage. And you realize then, too, why Jesus didn't go all over the place trumpeting that he really was the Christ. He did instruct the people about what kind of person the Christ, the Messiah, was according to the scriptures. And only later, when his disciples had heard and seen much of his ministry, did Peter reply to his question of who they thought he was by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anybody about it, that I'm the Christ. And why did he say that? Because people had to come to their own conclusion about that by seeing and hearing him comparing his words and deeds with what the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied about the Messiah. And people who didn't come to the conclusion that he was the Christ of themselves, they would refuse to accept him anyway as the Christ, no matter what he said or what anyone said, as long as they held on to their own unbiblical ideas about what kind of person Christ should be 
their eyes would be shut to the Christ who had come and was living among them. Because congregation, the scriptures certainly taught that what the Christ would do would far surpass God's other works. His other works of deliverance throughout the Old Testament. The servant of the Lord, he would be superior to all the other servants of the Lord in the Old Testament, the office bearers of the Old Testament. But the Jews of those days had more and more come to expect a kind of a national hero, a descendant of King David who would reestablish the kingdom of Israel and restore it to its old glory as in the days of David again. But in the meantime, they had lost sight of what the promised, anointed Messiah, Christ, was really going to do and how he would accomplish that according to Scripture. Congregation, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, was shown in the Old Testament as one who would bring God's people back to him by offering his own life to the Lord in perfect devotion so as to take the way, away the guilt of the sins of his people. And he would establish an eternal kingdom. And like he said to Pilate, not a kingdom of this world, but a spiritual kingdom. And he would far surpass all other servants of the Lord before him because all the other servants in the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the kings, they all fell short of the tasks they were appointed and anointed to do. Just think, the Lord God had prophets anointed in the Old Testament. Their task was to continually proclaim the word of God to his covenant people. And that often meant they had to call them away from the worship of idols and other gods, from unfaithfulness, call them to repentance, back to the living God of the covenant and to his promises of, of deliverance. And God also appointed and anointed priests of the tribe of Levi who were to constantly bring sacrifices in the temple and then intercede and pray for the people. With their temple service, they had the task that their, the service there in the temple, they had the task to teach the people that they could only live by God's grace, could only be God's people thanks to the blood of the atonement sacrifices. And they were to teach the people that a better, a perfect high priest was going to come. We sang about that actually in, in Psalm 110, and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not, not, by, not one who inherited it, but who was given it directly from God, a priest, who would bring the once for all sacrifice to fulfill um, all sacrifices and reconcile them to God. And finally, as you know, God had kings anointed who were supposed to protect the people of God from enemies and who were to govern the people with wisdom and lead them in the way of righteousness. But sadly, none of those Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings were truly able to fulfill their calling, were they? If you think about the whole Old Testament, every time began the failure to fulfill their calling. They were all sinful people inclined by nature to hate God and their neighbor. Most of those anointed ones even worked against God and his will and way. And they sought themselves instead of the one who had appointed and anointed them 
prophets who said that the people, what the people wanted to hear. Priests who abused their office for their own benefit. And kings who led the people in ways of sin and unfaithfulness instead of leading them away from that in ways of truth and righteousness. So throughout the Old Testament, you hear a growing call, a clear call for a better, a perfect office bearer, servant of the Lord, for a prophet who would fully and truly reveal the secret counsel and will of God concerning the redemption of his people, for a high priest who didn't seek himself, but who would sacrifice his own body to redeem people from their sins and genuinely intercede for them, and a king who would lead his people to God in righteousness and who would protect them in the truth. And you see then, congregation, how only against that dark background of, of the Old Testament scriptures can you understand what kind of person the Christ of the New Testament was supposed to be. And only against that dark background can we understand from what the Gospels say about Jesus and his ministry that he certainly is the promised Christ. The Christ sent by God to save his people. And then we see, too, that Jesus didn't appoint himself as the Christ, didn't set up his own program to save sinners. No, God himself had appointed and anointed him, as seen in John's baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, when the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. The Old Testament anointing oil always represented the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the anointed one. when they were anointed as prophets, priests, and kings. So Jesus was anointed by the Spirit himself at John's baptism, came down in the form of a dove, and he, God's Son, had come in the flesh in order to, as according to God's will, share in the guilt of God's covenant people so that he could bring about the forgiveness of all their sins and give them new life. God also gave him then what was needed to fulfill that program for salvation that he had laid out for him. He empowered him with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus would then, as highest prophet and only high priest after the order of Melchizedek and as king in the lineage of David, he would transcend and fulfill all God's earlier deeds of deliverance. But he would do that not with a physical strength, but by humbling himself even to death on a cross and so giving God's people back to him. And as we mentioned before, congregation, for the greatest part, the people of Israel sadly rejected Jesus as the Christ. Many of them did think he was the Christ at first. They were amazed at his teaching and at his miracles, what he was able to do, his authority. They even wanted to take him at a certain point wanted to take him by force and make him king. But that he had to offer himself up for their sin and guilt, that they refused to accept. And that was because they didn't see their sin and guilt before God as their greatest need, the need for which the Christ was going to come. 
But after his death and resurrection, God continued to show his people in the world that Jesus is the Christ who fulfills all God's requirements and who alone can restore life on earth, eternal life. Think of the Apostle Peter's Pentecost sermon in which he showed how Christ fit the bill for the complete Savior. He said at the conclusion of his sermon in Acts 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that statement still stands today. God has made that Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is the highest prophet who truly points out to us the way of truth and salvation. He is also the only high priest who can reconcile us to God through his sacrifice, the sacrifice of his body. And finally, he is the eternal king who is coming to judge the world and whose kingdom will never end. Only in him, only through faith in Jesus Christ, this, the Son of God, the Christ of Scriptures, can we find safety and is our future with the eternal God secure. And so we come to the second part of the sermon. Jesus is also the Christ who brings us to devote ourselves to Christ, our lives. So congregation, all true believers through the ages find their lives in this Christ, this anointed prophet, priest, and king who fully fulfilled all the tasks given. And no matter how many people have rejected Jesus as the Christ, the one appointed by God to bring full deliverance for his people, there have always been people too throughout time who have received him as the Christ, their savior. And his followers have grown worldwide into a new covenant people throughout the world who call themselves Christians and who now want to devote their lives to him and to God in him. And you may know how not too long after Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, Jesus' followers began to be called Christians. Anointed ones, actually. Interesting. After Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Strangely, while a lot of people refused to call Jesus the Christ, they were quick to, follow, to call his followers Christians. While that name was most likely a sarcastic, a derisive name, it was gladly accepted by the believers as a name of honor. And that's the way God wanted it too, that his Christ would gather a people for him who bear a name that signifies their close connection with him as the Christ. Christians. Just as Christ came into this world to devote himself completely to God then, so his Christians would also more and more devote themselves to God. And that's why the second question and answer of Lord's Day 12, Christ's people share in his anointing. They receive his spirit, in other words. And notice how that's confessed there in Lord's Day 12, the second question and answer. It doesn't say that we're Christians because we try to imitate Christ. In his devotion to God, we, don't, we wouldn't be able to do that. But we confess that we share in Christ's anointing 
He shares with us the same Holy Spirit then who impelled him to serve God as prophet, priest, and king. If we believe in Christ, then we're also anointed with the Holy Spirit and he incites us to devote ourselves to God more and more as prophets, priests, and kings. And then as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1, then for us to live is Christ. For us to live is Christ. And the Spirit of Christ then moves Christians to, as prophets, priests, and kings, to, first of all as prophets, to confess Christ's name everywhere. Also call others to God. And that's of course not only in church, but it means confessing his name also outside the walls of church in word and also in deed, showing others that he is the Christ, that he reigns, and that only thanks to his sacrificial death and resurrection, too, there is a future for anyone in this world. And then it's even prophetic to seek the unity we sang about at the beginning of this service. How good it is when brothers are united with one another's company, delighted, and live in pleasant harmony to be a congregation, a body of Christ living in harmony like that is to prophesy in itself by deed. Then we radiate to the community around us here of the love and peace of Christ. It's prophecy when others notice that and say, look at how those Christians in that church love and care for each other. Would there be a place for me among them? And then the Spirit also calls us to a priestly life, to devote ourselves to a priestly life, the life of thankfulness, which the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans 12 when he writes, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God. We're called to, to bring sacrifice, in other words, as priests. Not, not a sacrifice to atone for any sins. That sacrifice has already been brought once and for all by Christ. Our sacrifice is not a sin offering, as they had in the Old Testament, but a burnt offering, as they had in the Old Testament. And our burnt offerings in the Old Testament were offerings in which the whole animal was put on the, the, the altar and completely burned up to ashes. That signified the desire to be completely devoted to God, out of thankfulness to Him. So as priests in Christ, we're called to offer ourselves in that way, to devote ourselves completely, our lives and everything we possess, to Christ as sacrifice of thankfulness to Him for His atoning sacrifice for us. And you realize what that sacrificing then is. It also means a quite a lot of self-denial for us as people who are quite self-centered in ourselves by nature. It's a struggle for us to bear a cross and so to follow Christ. And if we examine ourselves, you realize there's lots of room for improving our devotion to God in Christ and to his servant service as priests. We're inclined to be self-serving. But how can you as Christian offer your life to the Lord as thank offering if you're unwilling to turn off the television or computer for a while in order to attend a Bible study group 
or a congregational meeting. To give your life as thank offering means that his kingdom and his righteousness become the priority of your life. And then as kings with Christ, we'll also want to join him in that, that fight against sin and the devil in this life, right? Engage in spiritual warfare. And just as the power of our great King Jesus Christ isn't found in bombs and tanks and missiles as he governs this world and guards his church in the middle of it, so our weapons are also spiritual weapons. In fact, the greatest weapon of all is the word of God itself. It's the two-edged sword. It has, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, it has divine power to destroy strongholds. And Christ gives this weapon to his Christians and by his spirit makes them kings for God's kingdom in this world. But if we don't know and use that weapon, the weapon he provides, we lose our strength and effectiveness in that warfare. You see that in churches where the truth and trustworthiness of God's word is brought into doubt. Those churches will die away and the Christians who belong to them will lose their kingship and are swallowed up by the, the godless culture around us. So as Christians, we have the call as kings to know the word, study it, make it our own, Attend catechism classes, young people. Be under the proclamation of the word every Sunday. Because that trains us as soldiers, as kings, to use the weapons and to fight as Christians. As Christians, we need to sharpen our swords, sharpen our knowledge of the Bible in order to wage the spiritual battle of the kingdom of Christ in this world as kings against sin and the devil. And again, we're, we're not perfect soldiers in this war. We fall short a lot. We can be afraid of the enmity. Or there will be enmity if we stand by the word. People will say, what in the world are you standing for? That's completely contrary to the culture. We might be canceled. And we will fall often. We'll let opportunities to make use of that two-edged sword of the word go by. But then true kings in Christ will regret that and will, by the strength of the Spirit, be able to get up every time again and take up that battle against sin and the devil again and again. And then with a free and good conscience, as it says in Lord's Day 12, because we know that there's also forgiveness in Christ. Congregation, Lord's Day 12 doesn't tell us in a lot of detail exactly what it means in practice to be a, a true Christian, prophet, priest, and king in Christ. But you get the picture, I hope. You get the picture of what the consequences of being a Christian are. If to live is truly Christ, and if his spirit then lives in you, then it cannot be but those consequences will show in your life, right? Then your life will no longer actually be your own life, but Christ's 
In fact, Christ will live in you, as Paul writes elsewhere. And then the life he now lives with God will become visible in you more and more in your devotion to God. Because it will be your desire to confess his name as prophet. To offer yourself a sacrifice of thankfulness to him. And you'll want to do all you can to fight against sin and the devil. Because you know your future is with Christ forever and ever. Him alone. Amen.